Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today, a guest, Michael Goldstein. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having me. Awesome. I thought we could start by introduction. Perhaps you could introduce yourself and talk about how you got into the space and uh, where you're most focused on currently. Sure. So I first heard about Bitcoin in 2011. Um, I downloaded Bitcoin Core after a friend told me about it. It wasn't called Bitcoin Core at the time. It was just Bitcoin, the, the software, I mean. And I opened it up and nothing was happening. So I uninstalled it and forgot about it. Uh, and then in 2012, the rise of the Silk Road piqued my interest again as a you know longtime libertarian. The idea of having a free market online very enticing. And then sometime at the end of the year, probably in October or so, Cody Wilson of Defense Distributed gave a talk at the UT Libertarian Group about uh, his his project at the time, which. Uh, at that time, they hadn't even produced anything yet. It was just a, merely an, an idea of, you know, what would 3D printed guns mean? And he made an analogy of sending physical guns through the internet to sending gold through the internet, which uh, was his, you know, metaphor for Bitcoin at the time. And as soon as he called it, you know, effectively digital gold, everything about it clicked. And I, I've been hooked ever since. Um, I've been very interested in Austrian economics since high school. So I've been very interested in sound money and uh, monetary economics. So you just described Bitcoin to me in the right way. And it, it got me obsessed. And that's where I've been for the past six years. About five years ago, I started with a group of friends from the University of Texas, Pierre Rochard and Daniel Crow at the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute, which was a place for us to put a lot of cypherpunk and crypto anarchist literature, as well as Satoshi's public writings online, so that we could sort of preserve the crypto anarchist history of Bitcoin, which at the time was sort of being swept under the rug by people who wanted to appeal to Wall Street and other sort of incumbents. So that was kind of our way of doing that. We had a lot of economic analysis on there as well, which uh, has been rather influential. And then uh, fast forward, worked on some you know Bitcoin projects as a coder, but the the main thing has been co-hosting the Noted Bitcoin podcast with uh, Pierre Rochard, which has been a lot of fun. Let's play a little game where I ask you to to say a sort of you know thirty second to one minute, it could be a little bit longer, elevator pitch to convince a certain type of person as to why why Bitcoin uh, matters. Do sort of a no coiner, but like a generalist, a no coiner, not not someone deep in economics or or the technology specifically. What why should they care about Bitcoin? All right. Well, so I I think it's important for listeners to understand that term no coiner. I don't know if you've talked about it on the show before. Um, no, no, please. Yeah. So a, a no coiner, you know what it what it sounds like is merely someone who doesn't own any bitcoins. But what it really refers to when people sort of use it as this pejorative is a person who not only doesn't hold Bitcoins, but has spent a lot of time, if not years, concern trolling it and bashing it, despite the fact that it keeps, you know, increasing in value. So, you know, you, you name, you know, pretty much any, any pundit or journalist, and you're going to get it, you're going to get a no coiner from, you know, Paul Krugman to Nuriel Rubini and others. Uh, we kept we keep a list of them on the Nakamoto Institute at nakamotoinstitute.org slash the skeptics. So for those specific kinds of people, I actually don't think that there's a way to convince them. And part of me actually kind of likes it like that because these people are ideologically opposed to Bitcoin. Um, people like Paul Krugman recognize that if Bitcoin succeeds, it you know displaces his own standing within the, the economic system. And uh, that's actually, you know, why I want Bitcoin to succeed, because I don't want people like Paul Krugman's, uh, Paul Krugman to have opinions that um, matter, like his opinion shouldn't matter, it should matter, you know, just the, the, the money should stand on its own and not be at the whims of individuals or, or governments. So for those specific kind of no coiners, I prefer, you know, drinking their tears as time goes on. Um, <laughs> 
people like Nuriel Rubini, he famously like, he, he started bashing Bitcoin when it was 70, $70. And then now this past year, when Bitcoin went up to, you know, 17 or 1000 or so, and crashed down to $7,000, he had the gall to, you know, tell everyone, oh, see, told you so. So right. had you had you not listened to him, you would be 100x up the next time you didn't listen to him. So um, those people, they aren't going to be convinced and I don't want to convince them. I look forward to further hears from them. <laughs> How about the, the folks that are potentially convincible, like Austrian economists? who for whatever reason are just dubious or can't get on it, can't get it. Right. So with those people, so, so yeah, there's a, there's various other kinds of people, you know, for people who, you know, just are kind of, you know, you know, regular people who want to be convinced, I think going into the importance of sound money and how it affects their personal savings and, you know, future outlook is a very good way of, of showing them the importance of Bitcoin because all of these ideas are very accessible. There's nothing, there's nothing uh, mysterious or requiring of a, a PhD to understand. You know, the, the world has operated or tried to operate on sound money since, you know, the dawn of time. Pretty much any, everyone who has participated in the economy since antiquity has had these understandings of, of you know, sound money and, and why we've, you know, for instance, treasured gold and stuff like that. So for those people, that, that's the thing I, I like to focus on. For the Austrian economists, a lot of them, I think, one, are just very skeptical, which makes sense. Two, I think a lot of them um, just don't have the technical understanding. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things they don't quite understand about it. So for instance, you know, you can say that it has a fixed supply, but what does that really, like, how does that actually work? And to, to really understand that is you have to dive into how mining consensus works. Then, you know, it, it, Bitcoin has revealed some, you know, sort of flaws, I would say, not in Austrian thinking itself, but some of the casual applications of Austrian theory. So I think, you know, if you, if you go read the works of Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard and others... I don't see any contradictions with Bitcoin as it operates, but a lot of people, you know, they they look at the historical standing of gold and they see that it had had you know such such prominence, and they, they apply monetary importance to qualities of gold sort of in hindsight. So things like the fact that it's used for things other than money or that it's a physical good or these other things. And I think Bitcoin has helped us sort of, you know, sharpened our applications of, of praxeological thinking to money to give us a clearer understanding. So you just kind of have to work, work out these little things with those kinds of people. And what about the, you know, the deep uh, quote unquote technologists who are who you know weren't that interested in Bitcoin, but really came around to crypto when they read the uh, the Ethereum white paper, the proverbial moment, and are you really excited about the applications one can build on top of Ethereum? Why should they instead spend time focusing on I don't know building a Bitcoin core, or why have they not seen the light yet? So I think the big schism there is that they are trying to build a technology platform that may or may not work. I happen to think that probably won't work, but that's that's a different discussion. But, you know, as I described before, the reason that I'm interested in Bitcoin came from my interests in economics. I, I've been, you know, be, before, prior to 2012, I was a hardcore gold bug. And then once I saw the light with Bitcoin, I've been a Bitcoin bug, so to speak, since then. So for me, it's not about the technology, it's about the money. So the purpose of creating this blockchain data structure was to solve fundamental problems with double spending in digital cash so that we could create a decentralized money so that you can have a money that is able to retain its sound properties despite being in an extremely adversarial um, environment where everyone wants to you know, attack the system for whatever purpose they can get out of it. On the other hand, a lot of the sort of Ethereum folks and, you know, blockchain, not Bitcoin type people, they're thinking in terms of a, a technology platform. So it's for them, it's not about the money, it's about the technology. So it's sort of a difference in teleology. The purpose that I want is sound money. They are looking to create the next cool app. So my recommendation for them 
you know, I, I don't know if I don't know how many of them are convincible, except uh, if, you know, their own system fails. And even then, you know, I, I'm not sure what takeaways they'll, they'll get from it. But if they want to understand my position, I think they should perhaps do a deeper dive into monetary economics so that they can understand, you know, you know, why is it that I believe that at sound money is such a um, foundation part of a civilization? And, and because you are a, a, a developer, I'm curious, what would need to be true for you in order to like change your mind and become excited about the technological applications in the way that they have? Well, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited about the technological applications because of, uh, do you mean, do you mean for I guess beyond money? Like, yeah. Like yeah. cases beyond money. Yeah. I mean, for that, like that. I mean, uh, the reason that I'm a developer is not merely to write random pieces of code that do things that, you know, fit my, you know, trendy fancy or whatever. It's uh, the reason that I'm a developer is because I want to build the things that I want to see in the world. And one of the things I want to see in the world is sound money. So a lot of the, the things that people get excited about in terms of, you know, what they can build, just there's hardly anything in the Ethereum space that I've seen. One that weren't ideas that we were trying to throw around in 2013 with Bitcoin itself. But two, even more importantly, is just none of these ideas seem to be just, you know, none of them compete with money when it comes to what is the sort of biggest bang for my buck, so to speak, in terms terms of changing the world towards, you know, kind of my vision of how I think civilization could could be moving. Yeah, because this is a sort of a a Bitcoin for beginners episode. Can we can we zoom out a little bit and can you give a little from just like a technical perspective? Can you explain how uh, how Bitcoin works? What's sort of fundamentally game changing about it from a from a technological perspective? Sure. So, I mean, the 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 fundamental change is that now you can have a digital money that is decentralized. So our current monetary system is already mostly digital. Um, in fact, it's it's a rare occurrence that I use, you know, physical paper cash. Um, I'm usually swiping cards or using Apple Pay or or something else. And at the end of the day, the the settlements aren't necessarily like banks trading, you know, paper dollars or bars of gold or anything. It's just you know numbers moving around on a ledger. But all of these are being done in centralized way. So, you know, we have to put full trust in these banks and in the government and these other organizations and institutions to get that all of that information correct and not screw us over both by freezing accounts and other sort of censorship mechanisms, but also debasing the currency itself. Like we they they can they can fundamentally change the ledger by you know, adding new units on a whim, which they do at a staggering amount, especially in, in you know, more <laughs> oppressive places than the United States. We, we are at least uh, lucky enough to have a central bank that kind of restrains itself. But other countries, you know, like Venezuela and Iran are dealing with massive uh, hyperinflation. So we have to trust that with Bitcoin. What Bitcoin does is use a process called proof of work to be able to establish a decentralized consensus. And what that means is everyone in the world, without having to trust one another and know what the state of the ledger is like and be able to trade on that network freely without having to worry about one of these organizations censoring them or uh, debasing their currency. Can you describe uh, how this proof of work process differs from the Ethereum process? Uh, sure, a little bit. It's, that's not my expertise, but I'll try to do a good job of, of explaining these things. Uh, at least like proof of stake, it rather is, I, I, there's only so much I can say about it. But with so proof of work is basically a way of creating a an economic signal of opportunity cost so that you you can sort of force participants into having to play honest, honestly. So the way it works is that every 10 minutes, there's a new block that has new transactions on the network. And a miner can compete to try to get one of those blocks into the blockchain by, by producing a proof of work stamp, 
which is just is is just basically like it's almost like a lottery like people you'll you'll see in in the newspaper they'll describe it as like complex mathematical problems it's actually i mean it's complex to someone who hasn't looked at it but it's really sha256 is the hash function and it's it's very straightforward it's it's just sort of a way sorry i'm trying to think of how to how to word this you know uh, how, how do I word this? Anyway, it, the, the point the point is, is the 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 mathematical function isn't so much complex as it just sort of forces an element of randomness and probability onto the system, so that you know you have to burn a certain amount of electricity to uh, expect to get a number that meets the criteria that the network has imposed at the moment. So, if a person starts burning electricity for uh, a block that the, uh, the, the rest of the network deems invalid, they have wasted that money um, and they get nothing in return. Whereas if a miner produces a block that uh, is deemed valid, they get a block reward, which started at 50 Bitcoins and it goes down over time. Um, it's currently 12.5 and every four years it, it halves until eventually it just goes to zero. But they get that plus transaction fees. So, and then as soon as someone creates a new block uh, with this process, everyone else now has the incentive to start mining on that one because if they keep wasting time trying to make, you know, for instance, like a, a you know, sort of better proof of work on the last one, people are going to continue finding new blocks during that time. And it's going to be harder and harder to convince the network to use that old block. Um, because the the proof of work, you know, will no longer be enough to to be considered, uh, you know, the the valid new block on the network. I'm trying to think of where to where to go with that. So basically, it, it forces people to it forces the miners to sort of play along with the the new consensus. And at every step of the way, you know, it doesn't matter what what you had before. It do- doesn't matter if you're uh, an old miner or this is your brand new one. Uh, like first time trying to create a block. It doesn't matter if people know who you are or if you're completely anonymous. If you can show up with uh, a, a valid proof of work on on for the, for the longest chain, or sorry, the, the most work of a valid chain, then the network will consider it valid. And this is this is also good because for for users who are trying to sync with the blockchain, they can go by this proof of work as sort of the the ultimate reference as to what is the valid chain so that without having to ask anyone on the network what the correct chain is, they can recreate the history completely from scratch. So I can go right now, start up a new Bitcoin node, and I've, I've, I, I subscribe to the rules that uh, Bitcoin Core and uh, BTCD and all of these you know, uh, consent to it can recreate that that chain completely and i don't have to i, I can be in a bunker in you know like a, a cabin in montana or whatever and uh, i'll still get the exact chain that i would be expecting so proof of stake is where instead of requiring you to burn all of this electricity you sort of stake coins. So you say, you know, you prove that you own a certain amount of coins and that gives you more leverage in this this lottery signing system. And there's a couple problems with this. First of all, there are one of the big reasons why this became a, a hot issue was because people perceive Bitcoin mining as wasteful because it's burning all of that electricity. However, it's not wasteful, wasteful by definitions because people are paying for it, meaning they value it for some reason. So it's, it's just factually incorrect to think of it as wasteful. It's actually producing something of extraordinary value. And the reason that people have to do that in the first place is because people were cheating the system. So if you don't like it, you should be mad at the people who are cheating the system, not um, the people who are trying to uh, pay for a solution. But as far as proof of stake goes, some of the issues that exist is that there's something for instance called the nothing at stake problem where if someone if if you're mining a if you're mining a new block in proof of work it matters a great deal if you get the right block or not because like i said if you spend all of that electricity 
on a block that no one likes, then you wasted it all. But with proof of stake, it doesn't really cost you anything to produce new blocks. So you have an incentive to just create a ton of new blocks on different histories and just kind of see if the market, you know, picks up any of them. And so you can just you can just do a lot of different ones, and it doesn't it, it doesn't matter um, as much. There's not as in a sense there's well, I mean, it's called the the nothing at stake problem. So it's like you know you're supposed to be proving stake, and yet you don't have that same sort of skin in the game. And there's other issues too, like I mentioned with proof of work. You can be in a bunker and be able to recreate the chain, but if you have these people, there's there's sort of informational problems about the the proof of stake chain, such that you you can't necessarily recreate this without having some sort of centralized person that you have to ask about certain checkpoints when you're trying to recreate this chain. So if you want a more technical discussion of this, you know, like I said, proof of stake is is not my expertise, but there's a very good article by Andrew Polstra called On Stake and Consensus that I, that I recommend people read if they want to kind of uh, dive into these ideas on a on a much more rigorous level. Cool. Awesome. Uh, zooming out a little bit again for, for beginners, can you describe what exactly is a blockchain technically, how it works, and, and why people have all these misconceptions around it? Yes. Well, a blockchain is a chain of blocks. Sorry, I was just like, trying to think, like, what is the blockchain and how does it work? Or what's its role in, 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 in Bitcoin? I mean, I guess, like, as I explained, the, the purpose is trying to create the, the decentralized consensus. So the real critical part here, I mean, if someone's you know, knowledgeable about computer science or whatever, they've probably heard of a linked list, which is just a, a, a list of things where, uh, of objects where each one references the object before. And a blockchain is kind of like that. However, the importance is the blockchain also includes that proof of work so that you only accept the next object in that list if it has made this objectively verifiable economic opportunity cost signal. And so because of that, you can create the decentralized consensus. Without that proof of work, you know, it's really just a linked list. Without that proof of work, it's not decentralized at all. So you don't really need this whole big charade for anything, you can just use a SQL database. Another concept that is uh, that people hear about but may not understand is this concept of forking. Mm-hmm. Describe a little bit of, of what that is, and maybe as a segue, you can give a uh, you know, can you give a, a history of the of this you know quote unquote civil war or of what led up to sort of the Bitcoin Bitcoin Cash split and, and your impressions on on what happened there? Sure. Well, in the early days of Bitcoin, well, it didn't seem like the early days when I was experiencing. <laughs> I felt like a latecomer, but a lot of uh, Bitcoin's marketing oftentimes included things like low transaction fees, if not free. And it included stuff about a, a lot of payments, you know, being able to use it at, at merchant, you know, retailers and stuff. And over time, as we learned more about the system, it became apparent that, you know, if you have, first of all, people, that, that's not the main use of Bitcoin at this moment. People, people focus more on sort of the long-term savings rather than using it to buy coffee. But at the same time, we, we came to, to better understand how Bitcoin would scale, which is to say it, it wouldn't be through merely creating more throughput on the blockchain because this can have major risks to decentralization because of um, the inability of full nodes to be able to keep up with the network and and enforce the rules that people want to enforce. So instead, you know, people started looking at second layer solutions, but also more importantly, going into all of you know these other ways of speeding up and optimizing you know verification of signatures um, and and you know optimizing our ability to work with what we already have. And perhaps in the future, we'll be able to increase that throughput a little bit more. But it's, that, that's not something that has uh, really taken off yet. So a lot of people who still h- held on to these um, ideas of focusing on merchant retailers and you know, trying to scale Bitcoin via the strategy of merely increasing the block size, um, over time, this grew into a very heated sort of social media battle, which eventually led to the formation of Bitcoin Cash and projects like, you know, No2X. Before that, there was Bitcoin XT and Bitcoin Classic. 
um, Bitcoin Unlimited, these different projects that seek to create um, bigger block sizes. Each one of these failed to to gain any traction, but Bitcoin Cash did, you know, successfully hard fork, and so a lot of that community um, that had those that that vision for scaling and buying moved to the Bitcoin Cash chain, and um, everyone else stuck with Bitcoin. And we're going to debunk a lot of misconceptions uh, today. So one of them is, why is there a difference, or what is the difference between payments and medium of exchange? A lot of people confuse the two, and why does it not? Why is it actually like, not really matter that much that Bitcoin is not going to be used for for to, to buy a cup of coffee and that's more valuable as a store value? Like, wh- why are basically they wrong? Yeah, well, I mean, it will eventually be used to to purchase everything. But yes, I mean, you you pointed out the key thing here, which is that people confuse the economic term of medium of exchange with simply a method of payment. So, a medium of exchange in economics is a good that someone acquires for the purposes of acquiring something else. So it's just for indirect trade. So method of payment is specifically, you know, just sort of your interface of that final exchange of, you know, selling, uh, buying or purchasing a a medium of exchange. Um, But it's not really the medium of exchange itself. So I, I spend dollars, but I don't give people physical cash. I usually, you know, swipe a debit or credit card and somewhere way in the back, some ledger is getting changed eventually that, that settles those transactions. So likewise, you know, every transaction that occurs using Bitcoin doesn't necessarily need to use the chain itself, depending on people's, you know, a different risk profile in terms of how, how fast do they need it settled? What is the likelihood of, of censorship resistance? Uh, like uh, needing that, you know, how much do you want to pay because it's costly to get into the block space if there's high demand. So you have to take all of these things into account if uh, Bitcoin is really worth spending. But even then, the only reason that a medium of exchange would be accepted somewhere, the reason why something becomes a medium of exchange is because you have the belief that someone will demand it. And uh, right now, most dem- comes in the form of people demanding it to to hold on for the long term um, and not so much businesses trying to gain an edge on, on payments platforms. Um, so another big misconception is sort of, in my opinion, is trying to differentiate medium of exchange from store of value. Um, and even a lot of people on my side, so to speak, make this distinction, but store of value, all, all goods in the economy, their value is completely subjective. And they can they can change at the whim of people's preferences. So there's no like magical way to sort of store value and and pause everyone's preferences to be at a certain place in the future. What store value refers to is sort of medium of of exchange over time. So you you purchase a good for the purposes of indirect exchange, so that sometime in the future, you can make use of it. So store of value, as people are describing it today, is I'm not purchasing the good so that I can spend it tomorrow. I'm purchasing the good so that I can spend it you know, in a decade or give it to my kids or grandkids so they can spend it. And so it's, it's looking very deep into the future as to when um, it would actually get spent. Yeah. And if you, I'm curious, I mean, Jihan Wu from, from Bitmain, Presumably, I don't know, is, is a you know, smart guy or a successful guy at the least. Like, mm-hmm. he's, he's heard these arguments before. W- why does he not believe them or, or what does he instead believe? Uh, I mean, I, I can't speak for him. All I know is that he is a, he is a Bitcoin miner. And based on you know, the, the reports coming out of uh, his business and some of the slides that have been posted online, it doesn't seem to be the case that he's uh, as interested in being a large Bitcoin stakeholder for whatever reason. So in that case, he's providing mining services, but that doesn't mean that uh, he's he has Bitcoin hodlers interests in mind um, per se. Miners, everyone's everyone in Bitcoin is a, a sovereign individual who gets to do things on their own self-interest. He gets to make money um, producing blocks, but he might have a he he might just have very different preferences and value preferences and values of of where he's trying to go. So. Can't speak for him. Yeah. And if you can go back in time, I mean, this was a pretty, you know, like existential moment for, for, I mean, I guess two questions. One is, 
if you can go back in time and you had quote unquote the power, would you have changed anything about how things turned out? Or is, is this literally the best outcome that could have happened? And two, if you could change anything about Bitcoin, like anything, would you, would you, is there anything that you think Bitcoin would be better off if it, if it had? Sure. So, you know, for the most part, I like to, you know, there's a, a Nietzsche quote about, you know, Amor Fati, let that be my love henceforth. Uh, you know, Amor Fati meaning love of fate. I kind of, we, we, we learn from everything that happens. So, you know, I, I, I love when all of this drama happens because it just teaches us so much and it's, it's fun anyway. As far as things I may have changed, you know, signatures are going to be coming up. And at the time, I believe Schnorr signatures had come out of patents in 2007 or so, or even 2008. So Bitcoin could have technically used it at the beginning, but uh, it did not. Instead, Toshi opted for ESA. So, you know, there, there could be the, the case that the case made that uh, Bitcoin would have been better off using Schnorr signatures from the get-go. And can you just um, what they are and how they're different from... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's a whole, a whole other rabbit hole. Basically allows for better privacy, better multi-sig, and a whole host of things that, that can improve Bitcoin signatures, both in... in size and speed and security you can you can also uh, sort of more formally prove the security assumptions with schnorr than ecdm but uh, i would also I, I think it would have been good to start lightning development much earlier than we did mm-hmm. and and how would you uh, define what to the audience why lightning is game changing well lightning is game changing as a decentralized layer two solution where payment channels are a way to trustlessly, rapidly trade Bitcoins with one another by basically trading back and forth valid Bitcoin transactions and just not broadcasting them so that you and the person you're trading with can do it off band and only pay the price to and have to deal with the slowness of the network when you're ready to actually uh, finish a settlement. So Lightning Network allows... Uh, people to route very, very fast payments to one another. And it creates more privacy. It, like I said, it's very fast. It's extremely cheap. Uh, it's also, like I said, very, it's, it's trustless or it's, it's trust minimized is, I guess, the, the more uh, correct term. But uh, it, that's very good for imagining systems on top of Bitcoin that don't rely on centralized custodians. Some people might want that. Uh, but others might not. And so it's important that we have solutions that sort of cater to all sorts of, of needs um, as far as using the Bitcoin network. Before getting into a more formal debunking stream of topics, I'm curious, you're, you know, you're an economist or your, your passion is economics. What would you say? That's sad. It's very insulting. <laughs> an economist like yeah, that. Totally. <laughs> well, let me ask, what would you say to someone who just graduated, let's say, with an economics major, did anything they learned in college help them better understand Bitcoin or better understand what's going on here? Um, probably not. I don't know. I, I, I didn't get a standard economics education. I studied economics on my own, reading you know, the, the Austrians and, and sort of fellow travelers and stuff. So that being said, the people I've talked to who have studied economics tend to you know, they, they tend to be more entrenched in the, the status quo, just that's what they're taught. And so uh, I think there's a lot of unlearning that they have to do about economic theory before they can grasp some of the the economics. Um, but I don't think that's, it's not like a lost cause or anything. They're, I, I don't view them as the enemy. Um, it's just that there's, there is a, a bit that they have to learn. And there's, uh, to, to, to wrap their minds around like, <laughs> Why, why you would want this because people hear so much about, you know, say de- de- the importance of inflation and the, the dangers of deflation and stuff like that. So right. um, I recommend they, they read the Austrian economists. That would, that would probably help them a lot. And is there, is there argument based on inflation that increasing inflation will boost consumption and thus stimulate the economy? And the Austrian argument is, you know, inflation will, you know, make your money worth less <laughs> and you'll <save> less. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, basically, I mean, th- that, that's a good way of, of putting sort of their view on it. Austrians also deflate, define inflation a little bit different. So we define inflation on the supply increasing, which happens through, you know, political reasons, not merely because the market wills it. So while they focus on the, the prices, which 
Austrians view as kind of downstream. That's a, it's an effect of monetary inflation. Yeah. Just, so, so, so oh. there's, what was that? No, go for it. Sorry. Oh, so, but I mean, the other thing, the, the Austrian position is that, you know, there, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with prices increasing or decreasing. If it's, you know, the market at work, like I said earlier, you know, preferences change and values change. And so, you know, there will always be, you know, different supplies and demands of different goods on the market. The problem is that when you have a systemic, you know, you know, debasing of the currency, it artificially lowers interest rates. And that causes it causes people's economic calculation of the for, for the projects they're working on to be very misinformed and, and relative to what actual savings and resources exist. And so because of this, you, you get a boom in an economy where people take on projects they think they can handle and that they think they'll get great returns for it. But then as the, the, the savings and resources aren't actually there, they eventually inevitably run out and thus you have a crash. Um, and it's this sort of the unpredictability of that increase in the money supply. So theoretically, if you had a 1% increase for all time, you, you wouldn't have this problem of the business cycles. But we, we get that with Bitcoin in terms of the, the predictability, and we take it one step further by removing that political variable altogether so that we don't have to deal with that. Yeah, yeah we, t- we touched about it earlier, but perhaps give a little bit more history of you know, uh, this concept that you know, Bitcoin stands on the shoulders of giants. Um, and we talked a bit about the cypherpunks, um, talked a little about Austrian economics, but can you maybe give a little bit of history of the of cypherpunks and, or just more of like Bitcoin's intellectual roots? Yeah, well, I, I guess like the, the big start, I would say, was in 1976 when Whitfield, Diffie, and Martin Hellman wrote their paper on public key cryptography, which released that to the world. And it gave, it gave people a way to create secure communications channels in a totally sort of adversarial, adversarial open environment. So just like the open internet, I can, I can get your public key, I can encrypt things to it, and only you, the person with the private key, can um, decrypt it. So you can set up this handshake ritual and all that. Then, you know, people, people built on these ideas. People like David Chaum started thinking about anonymous, untraceable cash you could do by doing some kind of voodoo with this, this cryptograph, uh, these cryptographic uh, primitives and stuff. And then in the late 80s, uh, but then especially early 90s, people like Timothy May, John Gilmore, Eric Hughes, and others who were very interested in these topics and, and thinking about the implications of them and wanted to build them formed a group in the Bay Area called the Cypherpunks. Um, this also included uh, people like Nick Zabo and Wei Dai. They had, a, they had a famous mailing list. So they would have in-person meetings, but there was also a famous mailing list. And on this mailing list, they discussed, okay, now that we have this strong cryptography, what does this mean for the world? What does it mean for the freedom that we can create in spite of what any government thinks or wants or what anyone wants or thinks? Or th- what are the things we can actually build? And so, you know, people like Hal Finney, uh, who is in the group, he built the first remailers, anonymous remailers, which lets you send to the, the mailing list completely anonymously. He was one of the early developers on PGP, which is a crypto system that, that, that has its own uh, incredible story but they're doing all this and on this mailing list there were famous posts from you know people like Wei Dai put out a thing called B money which was a pro- proposal of what a decentralized money uh, might look like with cryptography and then uh, Nick Zabo famously he, he has many seminal essays but one of them was called bit gold and that was a proposal of you know a more like an updated proposal that was kind of closer to what you could use to, to produce a, a decentralized digital currency. Satoshi Nakamoto references these in his, in his white paper describing sort of his own influences, although he wasn't necessarily aware of them specifically when he was making it. But the point is, is people were developing these ideas over, over many decades and putting many pieces in the, into place from, you know, the the Merkle trees and peer-to-peer networks and the hash functions and the, the digital signature schemes and all of this. And all of this had to be in place so Satoshi Nakamoto could add his dash of magic with 
with proof of work and the you know, difficulty adjustment and, and concepts like this that made Bitcoin sort of this, this holy grail. Yeah. Okay. Now we're going to move up, move to our portion where I'm going to say things that people typically say about Bitcoin who, who aren't super familiar with it. And then you're going to debunk them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one is gold bugs, uh, who we have a soft spot for. Sometimes they say things like, Hey, gold has just been around for, you know, so much longer. And that's why it's more valuable Bitcoin. And also because I can use gold for jewelry or other purposes. And I, I can't use Bitcoin. For other purposes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So uh, that first one, the, there's something called the Lindy effect, where the longer a non-perishable good like an idea or technology exists, the longer you can expect it to be in the future. So actually, this is a pretty good argument for gold. It's also not a bad argument for the dollar itself because they've exi- like the dollar has existed so long, even in its current state, that you could expect it to last longer. However, um, Bitcoin is a fundamentally new technology that offers something new and is succeeding at it and it continues to exist so it has its own sort of lindy effect sort of backing it up so to speak and because of this we can also expect it to go to continue into the future and so based on that we have to start looking you know especially deep at the competitive monetary policies and uh, neither gold nor fiat can compete with bitcoin's monetary policy which is far more fixed and deflationary and thus has has more reason to be invested in for long term term savings and 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 other reasons. So despite those Lindy effects existing, Bitcoin has a, a real reason to believe that it will overtake it. And in fact, I do believe it will. What what was the other one? Oh, the other one was gold as use case of jewelry. Oh yes. Yeah. So th- this is one of those things that some Austrians even get get tripped up on. And this comes back to a, a thing called the regression theorem. And basically, it's this idea that it would have to have been used for something else in order for people to have demanded it such that it kind of becomes that medium of exchange. However, that's, that's only really needed for bootstrapping. And in the case of Bitcoin, people may have just you know, thought it was cool or whatever, and that's why they started demanding it. Their other argument is that by being jewelry, it kind of gives a baseline value for, for the thing. So it's like, well, even if everyone stops using it as money, it'll still be useful as jewelry. But that doesn't really answer questions about, well, like, why do people, you know, value it as money? And I don't think that that has anything to do with the, the jewelry and that's baseline value. I think that the money has more to do with the social consensus. And uh, I, I think it's perfectly fine that Bitcoin isn't really used for anything else because it serves the job that we need with money, which is to create that social consensus. And, you know, I'm, I'm fine with not being able to wear my Bitcoin. Right. What about people who, like some people say, hey, Bitcoin's a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> what do you say to them? They should, they should look up what a Ponzi scheme actually is, which is where someone can only make money by, like, uh, the, when the next person invests money, that's who pays back the first people. And in Bitcoin, the only way that I can actually, you know, see my Bitcoin's increase in value is if the economy is using it for real value and, you know, people actually purchasing it. So old time Bitcoin or Oleg Andreev put it best, I think, when he called uh, Bitcoin a dump and pump scheme. So it's kind of put out there and all of us, all of us just like, came across this thing and now we're using it. And the only reason that it actually and appreciate real value, because I, I alone, we, it's, it's, we can't just will a, a bull run into existence. It's, it's a very, you know, it's a complex world out there. Fundamentally, over the, over the very long run, we have to actually build this thing that functions as a money so that people demand it as a money. I and mean, otherwise, the whole thing's kind of worthless. So it's, it's, Calling it a Ponzi scheme kind of, kind of just it, it misses all of this, and it, it it thinks that you know Bitcoiners are just kind of like uh, high time preference gamblers, which I suppose some some might be, but that's more for the altcoiners. But they think that the the money is just like we're just like it's just a a get rich quick scheme. When I think most Bitcoiners rec- recognize that at best this is a get rich rather slow and steady scheme. 
What, what about people who say that it's only for speculating and, and that in a very derogatory way? What, what do they not understand? Yeah, well, first, I mean, the, the idea that speculation is somehow a bad thing is kind of uh, misleading. I would say that all entrepreneurial acts ever, every economic decision is some form of speculation because the, the future is inherently, inherently uncertain. But they um, compare it to like horse racing. Right. So that's, look, I mean, there, there's some people who they, they merely purchase Bitcoin for that purpose. But even then, these people, that they would be doing that is, is showing that there is an inherent, inherent uncertainty that they need to make economic judgments about. And they've chosen to try to gain short term through this. Now, when they do this, this adds liquidity to the economy and sort of helps the market gain more information about this thing. And so it's really not bad. It, it adds depth to the market book so that we can we can better discover prices. Um, and those types of people will, you know, if, if you if you're a high time preference person who's who's just in this for, for you know, a, a sort of gambling, then you're likely to get wrecked. You know, the, you're, you're going to get excited during the bull run, buy too much, you know, over leverage yourself. And then Bitcoin goes all the way back down to what seems unstagger- like staggeringly high at 7,000. And you feel like the world has ended. So don't worry about that because the, the people who treat it like that, you know, will, will get what the economy has coming for them. If Bitcoin, if, if their participation in the bull run actually helps uh, the world adopt more Bitcoin, thus making it a more valuable thing for everyone involved, you know, they deserve to have made money off it. If they lose money, well, that's part of the risk that they took. And yeah, I, I just, I don't have anything wrong with price discovery. What can I say? And and tell a little bit more about like holding is using. Right. Well, the purpose of money is to hedge against future uncertainty. So the the fact is, is that at this time you have, you know, a given set of options in the world, but nothing quite is nothing quite meets what you want versus what you think you could have in the future. So what you do is you you purchase the most liquid good known as money. And you hold on to that because being the most liquid good, you know that at any time, you know, whatever it might be, because you don't know, there will be that thing that you can go go trade that for. So it's like, mm, nothing quite, I, I don't really want to do, no, I don't know what I want or want to do right now. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just hold on to cash. And then you're walking down the street one day and you see you know, some, some new gadget that will change your life. And you, you spend the money on that. You, you didn't even know that you were going to, you were going to come across it. It just happened upon you. So what people don't understand, they, they talk about, you know, it's kind of that method of payment thing. People think that to use money means to go spend it on coffee, but spending is actually the disuse of money because you no longer, because you're basically, when you spend money, you're saying, I no longer need this money because I found the thing that gives me the value at this moment that I that I want. So to use money is to hold the money in case in the future you see something. Now in in the future people might not be hodling at Bitcoin quite as hard because there won't be as many upside gains. This is after Bitcoin has gotten to 10 million or or higher or whatever. But in the meantime, you know, it's obvious like the, the upside gains from holding Bitcoin are, are so potentially enormous that people have very, very good reason to think that they might want to hold a lot now rather than uh, just spend it all. And so <laughs> some people get up, upset by that. Why are, you, why are you hodling? But this hodling has a very rational purpose, which is that people just think that in the future, that money will be able to do much more for them than any particular thing that they could buy right now. Uh, so hodling is using and spending is disusing, but there's no, there's no correct balance of either. It all depends on a person's specific preferences as well as their, their time preference, like how much they're okay with delaying gratification. And, you know, Naval had this, uh, it was tweet or a collection of tweets basically uh, implying that people who are hodling 
or holding on uh, are free riders. And I think he meant it uh, not in the moral sense, but in the like literal sense of you not doing anything while the protocol is being, to improve the protocol while other people are and they're reaping the benefits. Why do you feel he's incorrect if you do? Well, hodling is not free riding. Like hodling in a weird way is sort of hard work because you have to, you know, think like every moment is like, am I making the right decision? And you're having to delay gratification. So every every moment that you're hodling, you're not buying Lambos. And so, you know, that that is that is something that that, that is something you're giving up for the purposes of wanting something in the future. So you're you're putting up the capital such that, you know, the rest of the Bitcoin economy is sort of funded. You know, you're investing in the Bitcoin economy while hodling. It, it raises the price, which attracts more investors, it attracts more developers, it attracts all these people. So, so you're actually, you're investing in that economy. And when you get that payoff, it's because you put up the risk and now you get a reward for having um, successfully chosen the right thing to risk. Um, As far as developers, you know, not making more than just hodlers. Well, they weren't putting up the, well, I mean, a lot of developers are investors, but you know, for ones who aren't, they weren't putting up that risk in the first place. But the other thing is, you know, Bitcoin is a global decentralized open source system. And I don't think that a lot of developers um, are actually even thinking about money. You know, when they when they work on Bitcoin, you know, maybe they're trying to increase the value of their own hodlings, which is a you know perfectly reasonable thing to do and something I, I recommend. But at the same time, you know, they're j- this is something that's just very interesting. It's very powerful. It's very exciting. Um, it has so much potential for society that, you know, it's, it's a bit reductionist uh, to assume that it's just like it all comes down to to making money at the end of the day. You know, I, I spend a lot of my time working on things that don't get me any money just because I, I think that they're important, you know, like the, like working on the, the Nakamoto Institute or some of these other projects. So the same thing can happen with developers. And so, you know, it, it the, the other thing is that we see empirically that Bitcoin development is happening. So Naval's argument here is that, you know, it's not being, it's not be, it's not incentivized enough. And of course, there's all kinds of hypothetical histories we can look at, you know, and, and imagine. It's like, oh, if only, you know, this many put, people put in this money, this amount of money to this thing, and then we could pay these developers this thing, this much or whatever. You can, you can contemplate all of that. But at the end of the day, what really matters in this world is results. And what we see with Bitcoin Core, for instance, is that it's, I would say, one of the greatest software engineering teams in the world, working on one of the most important things on the world and delivering every day. And so what we have to do is look at that and ask, why is that happening? How is that happening? Rather than immediately try to um, apply our own theories about how it should work, you know, look into how it does work before we, we try to improve things. And, you know, for, for any investor who is concerned about this, first of all, I want to know, you know, have they have, how have they looked into different funding models themselves instead of kind of, uh, you know, almost, uh, concern trolling about these, the, these, these, these worries that they perceive that I'm, I happen to not even be worried about it at all. Right. What um, what do you say to people who say that hey, you know, fiat is backed by government, and that's why it'll always be more valuable than Bitcoin, or Bitcoin will never be able to, you know? Yeah, well, this this is kind of like an AppCoin ide- ideology. Is you know, the the dollar is the the AppCoin that you use to to pay pay for these services, but also like somehow like guns make the money because uh, I think that's at the, at the heart of it is sort of you know like. This this has money because the government will for, force you to value it, whatever. But you know, if you have to pay taxes in dollars, that doesn't mean that you have to hold dollars. You can hold bitcoins up until tax day and then convert to dollars and pay that. And so the value will still tend towards zero, not necessarily go to zero, but it'll tend towards it. The other thing is that you know people holding the guns have to be paid somehow, and what is it that they demand being paid in? The other thing too is. You know, governments wield a lot of power, but I don't consider them omnipotent. So, you know, Venezuela has a standing army, and yet they're experiencing hyperinflation right now. Why is that? Why is Bitcoin so demanded there 
much more and appreciating rapidly against the Bolivar if it's government force that creates the value. If anything, I can imagine, you know, one day the government switching over to a Bitcoin standard and those same guns will be enforcing Bitcoin taxation. So I think that the those guns are serving a purpose for the government, but it's not necessarily where we should look to for the the root source of valuing a currency and why a currency has a given value on the market. Yeah. And what about what do you say to people who who ask well actually before that like China or Facebook, are, are they, or Facebook being a placeholder for, you know, big, big mega, right. are they threats to Bitcoin in some way? If they- yeah. Well, China, if you're listening to me, we're going to take you down, you know, like in the sense that, you know, there's nothing they can do to compete with Bitcoin. And what do I mean by that? Bitcoin has the perfect monetary policy and it is, it is, is decentralized. Anything that China or Facebook or Amazon or whoever you want to imagine, you know, the Federal Reserve, any of these organizations, if they try to create their competing digital currency, first of all, it has to compete with the other digital currency, the dollar, which is going to be difficult in many ways. Although I suppose the the yuan would would have, the digital yuan would would have an interesting time competing with that. But regardless, neither of them are going to have those sort of key ingredients that make Bitcoin important. None of them uh, are likely to have the strict monetary policy because the people in control of the money will always want to create more money because it enriches them at the expense of others. And by virtue of being centralized, even if it has that good monetary policy now, there's not necessarily a reason to believe that it'll be able to maintain it in the future, which also diminishes its value as you know a, a place to put your savings. And so because of this inability to compete with Bitcoin's monetary policy and its ability to maintain that monetary policy, I just don't see any real competition. It'll be fun. Like there'll, there'll be competition in the sense that I could imagine someone making it. But I, I don't have any reason to believe that they would be able to defeat Bitcoin. Seyfedean Amus in his book, The Bitcoin Standard, I think you, you just uh, interviewed him recently. But he talks about how actually China specifically maintained the silver standard while the rest of the world was converging on gold. And because of this, China was hit very hard economically um, because everyone got to swoop in and take advantage of the fact that they were using a less valuable currency. And so the same thing could happen with Bitcoin as it grows. Um, People will start, you know, waging speculative attacks on inferior currencies, including these centralized, you know, competitors to Bitcoin. What do you say to people who ask or like, who complain about the energy? Like, why are they wrong? Or or, are they partly right? And I guess, what's the solution to to like the massive amount of energy that well i mean the solution is to embrace it uh, because i think it's i think it's much more interesting and than than they think so people only look at the costs here they look at the fact that oh so much electricity is burned which I, I, I can imagine to to a lot of people with a certain worldview is going to seem you know quite staggering and like <laughs> not good you know for the economy however as i said earlier you know, we have to look at the benefits too. And what are the benefits? Well, the benefits, is, the, the main benefit is we finally get a global sound money um, that can't be debased or censored by any individual organization or government or anyone. And because of this, the existence of that allows for such incredible economic potential that the things we could do with it are so much greater than the costs. You know, and even at this very moment, you know, the, the cost of that electricity, first of all, people kind of overestimate how much electricity there is, but uh, being used in that. But even so, I, I expect the future Bitcoin to take up, you know, a good 51 to 80 percent of the global energy supply. Part of why this is good is that it it creates a global energy market where people start seeking out new profitable means of producing electricity. And they also find better uses of electricity that would otherwise go to waste. So if you have a bunch of, you know, solar panels sitting out that are producing electricity, but not that electricity isn't actually being used for anything, 
these, uh, if, if you attach miners to it, it kind of, it makes use of that electricity where it otherwise wouldn't be used. And so it actually doesn't go to waste. Um, but it also, you know, as, as the price, as the profits rather of, of mining go up or potential profits, new opportunities come about. So I can imagine in the deep future, Bitcoin mining helping incentivize cleaner energy resources because uh, it, would, it would incentivize things like thorium reactors. The important thing to recognize here is that no Bitcoin miner wants to waste electricity. It's not about Bitcoin. It's not about wasting electricity at all. It's actually about using the least amount of electricity in the cheapest way possible to produce this thing that people value. And so there's not a Bitcoin miner in the world who wants to lose a single jewel of energy. So if they can squeeze that out of somewhere, um, they will and they'll, they'll find all new methods of producing energy that will you know, better, better conserve their resources so they can, you know, make the most money off this. So I actually view this as a, as a great thing. Um, and I think environmentalists should embrace Bitcoin for the, the prospects of what it's going to provide for uh, human energy production. And what, if Bitcoin doesn't, you know, become the global reserve currency or, or doesn't sort of, you know, fulfill its prophecy, so to speak, why, why would that happen? Is it because, what would you, yeah, why wouldn't, what's the biggest threat against Bitcoin or why might it not win in the way we think it might? Um, it might not win. Well, I guess uh, some of the biggest threats would be if the Federal Reserve announced tomorrow that we're going on back onto the gold standard and, you know, interest rates are going to be brought back to market level and thus, the, the need for Bitcoin would be greatly reduced because, you know, we'd, we'd have a sound U.S. dollar again. That, I think, would be one of the biggest threats. Unfortunately for the U.S. dollar and thankfully for Bitcoin, uh, I don't think that that's politically viable. And I don't think anyone has the will to that to to make that happen anyway. So I don't foresee that happening. So unless someone else can produce a money that somehow has a better monetary policy than perfect. I just, I, I tend to view Bitcoin, given it doesn't have unforeseen technical flaws, I, I just expect it to happen. The, I dedicate that port segment of the podcast to my parents <laughs> <laughs> um, and all the other parents out there. So the last question of the podcast, this is really what I've been waiting for, uh, you know, all along. And the reason I brought you on the show is, uh, or one of them is because uh, I'm on a quest to to further mesh hip hop and bitcoin and you you are on a quest to mesh for those who don't know meat um or being carnivore and bitcoin so maybe you can give a little bit of a brief brief background there um and you know your 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 culture you know bearer in bitcoin what's it going to take to for 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 bitcoiners to really embrace hip hop and vice versa because you know rappers love gold they they travel a lot with gold and uh, and bitcoin would be better for them. I uh, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean and, and hip hop can be brought into this and if, you know, Nas, if you're ever in Austin, Texas, you want to get get a steak dinner, I'm happy to do that, talk bitcoin with you. But well, the bitcoin carnivore, uh, I I've been interested in paleo diets for many, many years and the further I went down this rabbit hole, you know, I eventually got to ketogenic diets and this led me to carnivore diets, coincidentally by the ex-wife of Zuko from Zcash, who's also a carnivore. So uh, I went down this path and, you know, I, I started doing it and it got great results. And many people around the world have had fantastic results eating in this way. For those who don't get when I say carnivore, I mean, um, I only eat from the animal kingdom. I have not eaten a plant food since um, 2015. And basically, I mean, the, the, the connection to Bitcoin, which <laughs> confuses a lot of people. I mean, first of all, it's, it's a bit tongue in cheek. You know, it's, it's just funny because there's, there's this confluence and convergence of people who are interested in sound money and economics and Bitcoin and tech and also sort of interesting heterodox diet and other ideas just in general. Like once you start questioning one thing, you can't help but start questioning another. But there are also very interesting connections just looking at the effects of, for instance, inflation on food quality um, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, just as, 
you know, Ron Paul has a famous quote of, you know, it's it's something like, it's no coincidence that the century of total war was the century of central banking. And likewise, you know, I would say like, it's no coincidence that the century of, you know, uh, processed food was the century of central banking. I, I had a quote about fiat food as well, as I call it, as, as the quality of the, the, the quality of the money seems to be tied in many ways to the quality of the food in the sense that to keep up with inflation, people look for lower and lower quality ingredients that can make sort of the same thing. So like swapping out animal fats for sugar and vegetable oils and other, you know, lower quality foods that cause metabolic and autoimmune and other issues in people replacing those so that you feel like you're getting the same thing for some like almost the same price or at inflation targets, but the overall has degraded because you're not offering the same thing. You know, if someone, if you, if you got a ribeye for $5, you know, a couple decades ago, and then a couple of years later, you're paying you know, $10 for a burger, you know, inflation, like the CPI numbers might say, oh, see, there was only a little bit of inflation because, you know, you're still getting meat. But the people actually eating it would be like, well, you know, I used to get a ribeye for less than this. And now I all I get is a burger. And so that that quality can degrade. I think more research needs to be done on this front. But I think there's a lot to be seen there. And it does kind of give an interesting connection between, you know, yet another way in which sound money degrades the quality of a civilization. You know, Seyfedean talks about its effects on um, the arts, on architecture, on technological innovation, on all of this stuff. And I don't think it's uh, crazy at all to imagine that it has an effect on our diets as well. And as people adopt a sounder money and start lowering their time preferences and thus looking farther into the future, they're going to want to maintain the value of their capital for the longer term. And part of that is going to be their bodily capital. And so they're going to start looking for the foods and lifestyles and uh, practices that can better maintain or increase the value of their body rather than not only have it as the sort of perpetually diminishing (laughs) value that we have to live through in our existence, but also like rapidly diminishing the value of via eating uh, junk food and poor lifestyle choices. Uh, as Sefadine has a quote about, about art, he says uh, something like, sound money is what brought us Mozart and unsound money is what financed Miley Cyrus's twerks. Yes. So sound money, you know, will bring us ribeyes and unsound money has brought us, you know, soiling. <laughs> okay, on that note, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is a blast. Where, where can people find you uh, online and learn more about uh, what you're up to? So the best place to find me is on Twitter at Bitstein, B-I-T-S-T-E-I-N. Um, you can also visit the Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, sorry, you can also visit the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute at nakamotoinstitute.org, um, and you can also tune in to the Noted Bitcoin podcast that I co-host with Pierre Richard at noted.org. Uh, if you happen to be more interested in the the meat ideas, uh, you can also visit my website, just meat at justmeat.co. Perfect. And uh, I've listened to every noted episode uh, and, and they're great. So definitely check those out. Thanks so much for, for coming on. Yeah, thank you. You have a great evening. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.